You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Welcome to the Magma Theater Podcast. I am your host, Lewis Kornfeld. My guest today is the creator of Improv Everywhere, the author of the book Causing a Scene and the subject of the 2013 documentary. Oh my God, I just had it and I forgot it. We make scenes? We cause scenes. We cause scenes. That's what threw me was the, yeah. uh, combining that with the title of the book. Charlie Todd, thank you for being here, Charlie. Thanks for having me, Lewis. I, uh, um, there's a bunch of stuff I want to I want to learn from you. Okay. Um, uh, but I do want to spend some time talking about uh, improv everywhere. Mm-hmm. I, on the train ride here, I witnessed a fight between a Showtime guy and an MTA guy. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, that got very heated. And it wasn't a hidden camera prank. Was there wasn't somebody a, filming it. No, not to the best of my knowledge. <laughs> no, it seemed to be a pretty genuine fight and things got really tense and it was one of those things. Was this like a conductor on the train? Yeah, or? it was a guy. He was like uh, riding the train to get to his, I guess he was working in the booth at um, 59th Street. Okay. So he was he was on his way to work and this guy started with Showtime and, and the and the MTI guy shut it down. Wow. And then, very polite about it, but he, he shut it down and then the Showtime guy just like wouldn't let it go for the next two stops and 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 kept on amping up was this starting in astoria yeah wow it was over the bridge and that's surprising to me that somebody who's just like a toll booth worker or you know anybody other than mta police could could stop a performance on the subway or would even try to stop i'll tell you my impression of it because before this happened he was like an old guy probably like 70 Mm -hmm. before this happened he stood up to offer his seat to a woman and her child and she politely declined it and then he sat down, and then he noticed some confused people, and he was giving them the best directions uh-huh. about how to get to where they were going. And then this kid came on the train to start dancing, and he shut that down. And then after the kid was yelling at him for two stops, he then was giving directions to another person before he got off at his stop. So my read was, this seems to be a guy who really loves his job. A, a deputy dog, like, loves the rules, has a lot of pride in the organization. That was my read. Yeah. Um, that was my read. The the thing for me was after the fight was over and, and this dude got off the train, there was that kind of um, sigh of relief moment mm-hmm. where people started looking at each other and rolling their eyes mm-hmm. at each other. And there was that nice sense of, of like... Community. Community. Yep. Uh, and it seemed very appropriate to happen on my way into a conversation with you about improv everywhere. Yeah, I love those moments of community with strangers, particularly on the on the train. And we've done so many things on the subway over many, many years. Um, and that's what I love. I love, because the only time where you have that moment where you might make eye contact with a stranger on the train or give like a shrug or a knowing look, it's always after something bad. Mm-hmm. So the fight that you just witnessed, um, typically if the train is like stuck in the tunnel for more than a minute, you know, you might start making eye contact and rolling your eyes with someone else. Um, and that's part of what Improv Everywhere was started to address is to create moments where people could have these sort of shared interactions, not for a bad reason, but for a good reason. For a like, oh my God, somebody just gave the entire subway car pizza. This is great. I'm smiling and I'm looking at somebody else who's smiling and I'm having, you know, that connection with a random stranger. Um, and so those are the moments that we, we try to create. Yeah. There, in, the, in the documentary, um, my favorite moment is when you showed the first No Pants Subway video. Mm-hmm. There's the woman reading the book. When you, you first come on the train and she notices you and, and 
she's a little bit alarmed. Yep. And then the second guy comes on the train and she's very alarmed and then she puts her book away. Yep. The best moment is when she makes eye contact with the two Dutch guys and mm-hmm. starts laughing. It's like that that beautiful highlight. To me that one moment kind of kind of represents everything that you're talking about in the film and everything you're talking about in the book. It's a really lovely thing. Yeah, when you're experiencing something weird and bizarre, even when our intent is positive, um, sometimes it can be a little, you know, disconcerting at first. But you know, as soon as you see that somebody else is also witnessing it, and you're not a crazy person, yeah. um, that you haven't lost your mind, um, yeah, it's a nice moment. And uh, yeah, that is one of my favorite moments we have on tape from from that first No Pants Subway ride. This might be a weird question, but um, uh, the kind of philosophy behind behind. Uh, improv everywhere mm-hmm. was that like did you go into that already with sort of a worked out theory of what you wanted to accomplish or did it begin more from the thrill of performing these kinds of pranks and then progressively learning from the effect that you were having on people and and, and that kind of woke up a sense of the mission of the movement yeah a little bit above um i think that documentary like you know the, that documentary has to have a little bit of a narrative to it and, yeah. and stresses a little bit that like oh i you know, with the hypnotist prank that we did in Washington Square Park, that maybe that was not the right tone and that that, that caused a course correct. And that, that might be subtly true, I think. Um, but I think if you look at pretty much everything we've done from the start, it all sort of fits in the same general rubric. Yeah. Um, but but at the same time, like at, over the years, as, as things have gone well and been successful, both in their response in person and also in the response that the internet's given to it, it certainly influenced the direction that we've gone. Yeah. So we do something like um, turn a little league baseball game into a major league game by adding um, the Goodyear blimp and a jumbotron and and cheering fans, and we see the you know how how much fun that is and how fulfilling that is, and then also how the nerve that it struck with people who saw it on YouTube, and that leads to well, what else can we do like that? Mm. So I think there's certainly been. Um, a you know the, the path of of positive feedback has led to similar things over yeah. the years. Yeah, I I'll give you my criticism of the movie okay. since you didn't ask for it. <laughs> I, I didn't make it. Yeah, so. the soundtrack uh, uh, it has this um, kind of dramatic music that plays that leads you to expect with every scene that it shows that something <laughs> disastrous is about to happen right right behind the bend. And then it never does. It's a wonderful movie and right, it's a wonderful right. thing that you guys have done. Yeah, uh, but that sounds funny. It's funny. It has this kind of like dramatic tension the whole time. Yeah, I, I, I think the documentary is great. Um, it is, yeah. You know, it was made by Matt Adams who... Um, was the videographer for Improv Everywhere for many years. So it was made by a friend. Um, but I, I took myself out of the process of, you know, I really said, Matt, he asked me if he could if he could make a documentary on us after filming our projects for probably three years. And I said, yeah. I mean, you know, he had done so much for me. I was like, yeah, this is the least I can do for you is say, yes, you can you can make this. Um, and But then I took myself out of it. And I was like, yeah, I didn't see it until about a week before it premiered at South by Southwest. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but it was a complicated thing of like, you know, imp- improv. A guy from Improv Everywhere is making a documentary about the Improv Everywhere guy is um, a very subtle difference from the Improv Everywhere guy made a movie about himself. Right. And I just tried to keep that line up, and, yeah. you know, it, but it was difficult. I, I, I don't imagine that many people who would be listening to this uh, don't already know Improv Everywhere, mm-hmm. but just to catch people up uh, who may not. Uh, so you have pretty much single-handedly, you and your team, have, have turned a form of public pranking into a complete theater movement. Yeah, it's definitely a genre yeah. of, of YouTube video, and it's, it's a genre that I think has been borrowed quite a bit by um, 
you know, appropriated by marketing mm-hmm. and, you know, all, all sorts of different um, activism. There's a lot of different um, uses for the types of things that we do. But yeah, I guess if you know nothing about improv everywhere, we stage scenes in public places. Um, it, you know, it started because I moved to New York City. I was an drama major in college. I had done some improv. I had read Truth and Comedy. I was going to take a level one class at UCB. But before that class rolled around that I'd signed up for, I had nothing, right? I I knew 10 people. I had no opportunity to express myself. And I was 22 and I was anxious. So I played a prank in a bar one night. uh, And then I got excited about that. And I wrote it up and put it on the internet. And then I kept doing it. The the famous Ben Folds prank. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Uh, That's interesting to me because like, it doesn't really start, correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. as a conscious idea to create a theater scene. It's a way to kind of entertain yourself uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and do something interesting mm-hmm. with your night rather than just sitting around waiting for things to happen. Yeah, I think it was just wanting to have something to to do. Yeah, part, partly boredom, uh, partly the need to express myself. Um, I think the need to be able to report back to others that mm-hmm. I was doing something other than being a temp worker during the day. Um, and it just also, you know, I, I, I just gave a talk at my high school last week. Um, I was in town and they asked me to come give a talk and I, I've talked to like schools quite a bit over the years. And that's the message I always have for them is just create your own opportunity. Don't wait for somebody else to, to give you an opportunity. And I think that's, you know, me making that decision of like, oh, okay, I'm not really doing anything. Um, I, I don't have an equity membership, but I could go wait for five hours to maybe get an audition for a play, or I could just go do my own thing. Um, and and I think now, more and more every year, with the tools that everybody has to create and distribute their own projects, there's no reason why anybody should ever wait for somebody to tell them to make something. Well, it's super cool, too, that it's not just what you did, but it's that you reported about it in the era before blogs were, yes. were a common thing. Yes. It, I... <clears throat> You started like 2001? Yeah. So so the rise of improv everywhere sort of coincides with the massive uh, media shift yep. from what now feels like a really archaic pre-iPhone, uh, pre-iPad time. Yeah. And, and you were kind of right alongside with it. Like you, you, was that a savviness on your part or was it just you were... You I was just really lucky that I took a, like an elective library science class in college where I learned HTML. Yeah. Um, and I took it upon myself to build a website for the student theater company that I was a part of. And I think building that website and learning HTML probably was more valuable than any of the theater training I got, which was also great. I love my school and I love my the theater department I was a part of. But I think... Learning how to do that unlocked a lot of doors for me. Yeah. Um, and that, that's really my, I think what the movie does best is it, it shows that sort of the, the subplot of the movie is the rise of the internet, you know, along with the rise of improv everywhere. Um, and you see us go from a group that is a GeoCities page, literally, um, literally with just like text and tiny photographs for a couple of years um, to, to YouTube showing up in, in 2006. Did that, the inability to post videos for a long time, did that create a sort of extra demand? Like, were there videos being passed around? Was there, like, a small network of people who, who were were trading off what you guys were doing? 
No, the only way to, to see our early projects on video would be to be in my apartment, uh-huh. and I would take my mini DV camera and hook it up to my television via the RCA cable and show you some raw footage. Because I didn't know how to edit, you know, I hadn't, I had no software to do that. I just had these tapes. I mean, I'm for the, for the documentarian sake, it was very fortunate that I filmed everything yeah. in the early days that we had all that stuff, and I, I'm glad that I've had it because we've released a lot of it, um, you know, in later years, um, but. It, for me, it, it was that era where everybody had a temp job, everybody was in front of the computer, the internet was a new thing, and you were hungry for content, and there just wasn't much content. And I think that remained true for a long time. I mean, it, it's, it's gotten very, very competitive. I think even like four years ago, the number of people who were creating on a regular basis content for YouTube um, or for the web in general was pretty small. Mm-hmm. And now it's every late night television show mm-hmm. is going to put up five videos that have a great headline and a celebrity attached every day. Mm-hmm. So it's made my job a lot harder, for sure. Does, does, is that something like, do you, do you enjoy rising to the occasion of having to fight that? Or is that something disheartening for you? Um, I wouldn't say it's disheartening. I would say it was, it was nice when, there weren't that, when the big dogs weren't on the same playing field yeah. as you. So how do you adapt to that? I'm figuring it out. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we, um, our last video did really well. Um, we, had, we did a video with uh, identical twins and made it seem like they were, had, they were time travelers on yeah. the subway. And it got, I think, 2 million views in the first maybe 10 days, uh, which is really good for us. Um, it's got about 3 million views now. And it ended up being the number two trending topic on Facebook, which we've never been on that list. Congratulations. Um, Donald Trump was number three. All right. (laughs) All right. um, So, yeah, I mean, I think a really good original idea can still rise to the top, but it just, it's getting harder. Um, And I think it's a little, it is a bummer, not just for me, but just for in general, I think that the giant corporate interests are are on the internet Mm -hmm. now. Like, it no longer feels like the content that you're seeing is a bunch of independent people making stuff. Mm-hmm. Like that, I mean, that exists, and maybe it exists in different places. Maybe that's what Snapchat is right now, and I'm just too old for it. Um, but YouTube was, a, was once a place where it was, I think, a little more community-oriented and a little more independent creator-oriented. And now um, those people still exist, and I still exist, and I'm still doing well, and I think, I think others are too. Um, but it's just very, it's a very, very crowded room. It's hard to adapt to the evolving platforms that are available. And like, mm-hmm. I wonder sometimes for someone who's like 14 years old right now, not knowing any different, I, I like, I wonder how wildly different their perception of the media landscape is than my perception. Oh, because yeah. there's definitely a very point different. where it's like, I don't understand what's going on. I can't, I can't follow all the different things I'm supposed to follow. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I have a hard time putting myself in their shoes, actually, and, and trying to imagine where are you getting your information from? How are you seeking out content? How are you finding things that are original and interesting? Yeah, I know. It's wild. Um, I think, you know, eventually cable is going to go away. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. It's, it's changing every day, and it's, it's hard to keep up with it. Um, but, you know, I, I think vloggers are still very popular on YouTube, and, and those are, you know, almost all independent, you know, one-man band type groups. The thing that I think is really challenging for improv everywhere, and it's probably true for, for people who put sketch comedy online, although sketch comedy traditionally doesn't do that well online, mm-hmm. um, with some exceptions for sure. Um, but anybody who's putting together something with production value on YouTube, it's really hard because you're competing against, you know, clips from 
late night shows and, and network television that has a much, much, much bigger budget than you could ever afford. Um, whereas the people who are just vloggers who just turn the camera on themselves and can put up 10 videos a day, they're not competing with, with what Jimmy Fallon's doing. It's interesting. It, it's kind of like a return to vaudeville in a way. It's like digital mm-hmm. vaudeville. It's almost exactly the same thing. You're competing in this, in this wildly saturated market and, and you can either have an amazing act, an amazing professional veneer, or you can be so bizarre and different mm-hmm. that people have no choice but to watch you. It's yeah. kind of like this great equalizer in that same way. It's, kind of, it, it, it's interesting to see that come back. And, and, and for the shortness of, of bits and ideas to be so important again, it, yeah. it really has that flavor to it. Yeah, and I think also we're going back to the time of, there's so much branded content, right? Yeah. And we're, we're kind of going back to the time of like, you know, comedy hours being sponsored by a cigarette company or, you know, whatever brand it is. Mm -hmm. Um, Because people don't watch commercials and, um, you know, people are having to figure out how to pay for stuff. Yeah. I wonder, do you, do you, I wonder if like looking back on the history of broadcast comedy is going to give us any clues about how to better adapt ourselves to the next 15 years of it. Yeah. I think there probably are some lessons to be learned from the early days of TV. Yeah. For sure. I mean, I would love to have sponsors for my work in the way that it used to be where it was just like tonight's episode is brought by, you know, brought to you by this brand. And then that's it. Yeah. You know, but of course, you know, there's so much branded content on the web and I feel like companies like the onion, like funnier die, um, like college humor, um, create a ton of original content. Um, but also have, you know, branded entertainment departments and there's so much energy, is going towards creating stuff that has brands integrated into it. And I do, I do some of it myself. I mean, it's, sort of, it's, it's where the money is, and it's how you're able to support the rest of the things you do. Um, which is sad, because I feel like there was a time on YouTube where it felt like the pre-roll advertising was going to support the content. Mm-hmm. And then it became so saturated, and the market became so flooded with content. The supply was so huge that those rates kind of went down. Mm-hmm. And it's really, that's not really sustainable anymore it might be sustainable if you're one person in front of a green screen talking you know doing commentary every day um but that money is is kind of gone down and the only opportunity to i think make revenue is to is to you know have like a product placement or integrated brand in some way how are you doing that how are you integrating i've done i've done it very carefully um and i'm very picky and you know i get approached a lot um but i look to find the partners that you know really just want to support me doing what I do. I've worked with Target the last two Christmases on, on big videos for them. Um, and they literally came to me and said, we love what you do. Uh, we want to do something around the holidays. You know, what do you want to do? Oh, well, I want to go Christmas caroling with an orchestra. That's an amazing idea. We love it, you know, and they paid for it. Yeah. Um, and at the end, there's a thanks to Target for making this possible logo at the end. And that's it. You know, they get to put it on their Facebook and, you know, they get to... Uh, they get to talk about it and send out a press release about this partnership they did. And it's a win-win. Yeah. Um, but you know, it didn't take place inside a target and it didn't have people wearing target clothes or target logos, you know? Yeah. Um, so I just try to find that, that line of the brands that get it and really want to just power me to do something that, you know, out of my, my budget, which is my wallet, I'm not going to probably hire an orchestra and go to New Jersey and set it up in somebody's front lawn. Yeah. I, one thing, I, I am curious how you feel. I, I, I was impressed watching the documentary. Um, I, I was impressed with certain choices that you've made about, 
your position on things. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, um, marketing companies taking over your strategies and 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 basically ruining a wonderful idea like the <laughs> like the uh, um, Rob Lathan High Five, mm-hmm. which is just such an awesome awesome thing, uh, uh, being co-opted by which, which football team? I think team it was the it? Bears, Chicago Bears. Chicago Bears. Yeah. The, the cool thing about Improv Everywhere is that there's no message at the end of it. Right. Um, it's not serving a political point or it's not just like selling you on something. It, right. It's it's the eruption of the bizarre in people's everyday life. For and the then, sake of the eruption. For the sake of the eruption. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, and I know that you've had to make that conscious choice to just kind of let it go when people steal your ideas and use mm-hmm. it for evil corporate <laughs> gain. But, but I'm curious what your perspective is on that, because it's really hard. Anything that's a good idea is just going to be sucked up immediately and, and yeah. used, by, anything, used by the machine. Anything that goes viral on the Internet um, or is successful on the Internet is going to be copied, co-opted, remixed in some way. And if you're the creator of that thing, you have to just brace yourself and, and, and learn to be okay with it. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, you know, I, we did the high five escalator thing, which for those who don't know, uh, comedian Rob Lathan, uh, was a friend of mine from UCB. He's at the top of the escalator and there's people on the stairs next to the escalators, this giant escalator, 53rd street and, um, Lexington Avenue. And, um, there's a series of signs like Burma shave signs along the road that says, Rob wants to give you a high five, get ready. And then there's a sign at the top next to Rob pointing to him saying Rob. Um, and he gave like 2,000 high fives over the course of, I think, the 45 minutes we were there. Um, really fun project. There's no message other than, hey, let's give high fives to people in their morning commute. Um, it's funny. It's unexpected. It made people laugh. Um, after that video uh, went viral, I saw people do it in other places. Like, you know, people went out in Japan and did high five escalator and then emailed me, you know, a, a, vi- a video they shot on a phone. Um, and I love that. I love coming up with a crazy idea, doing it here and then seeing other independent people go out just for the fun of it and doing it. But yeah, it is a bummer when you see like, Oh, the Chicago bears did one that was like, Bill wants to give you a high five and Bill's one of their players and their players at the top of the escalator. And even that isn't, it's not that bad. It's not the worst example of somebody stealing your idea. It's a football team. It was an athlete. Um, but if the way it was marketed and packaged, you know, there's like an end card that's like, get season tickets now, mm-hmm. or, you know, high five for season ticket holders. You know, it was turned into a commercial. Uh, but there's nothing you can do about it. Am I the first person to have somebody give high fives to people on an escalator? Probably not. Um, can you copyright the idea of somebody doing it with a series of signs uh, over the course of an hour? I don't think so. You can't really copyright an idea like that. Um, so you kind of just have to let it go. Have you ever wanted to, or, or like, how good, uh, how good are you at creating these events, playing them for what they're worth and then being able to just let them be in the world and not worry about it? Mm -hmm. Like it, 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 does it bother you? Yeah, no, it gets in my nerves when I see, but particularly because, you know, if when, when there's no courtesy of an email saying like, Hey, we really like your project. We want, we want to do it too. You know, that's kind of all it takes. Um, or even better, like, we really like your project. Will you come do one? Because, I mean, to be f- honest, if the Chicago Bears had emailed me and said, we want to do this with our star player, will you come direct it? And they had a budget and they paid me to come do it. I, you know, I'd do it, yeah. you know, to be honest. Um, 
you know, it's, I still don't think it's as cool as the one that doesn't have a message of purchasing something, you know, directly or indirectly attached to it. Um, but yeah, I'm available to, for, as a for hire director and producer to, to make things for brands. And I do that a lot. Um, you know, most of the stuff that I do with brands is outside of improv everywhere. Um, it's people who want to hire the improv everywhere guy to do something similar for them. Mm. And that's how I support myself. Um, or it's, or it's a part of how I support myself. Um, so it, but it, yeah, it just, it bums me out when anybody takes anything on the internet, mine or somebody else's and sees it and goes, Oh, that was a great idea. I really liked it. I'm going to do the exact same thing and attach my thing to it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just not the spirit of. Of, of what the original thing was using it to make money doesn't rub me the wrong way at all mm-hmm. it, you know what rubs me the wrong way about it is this kind of cynical laziness of seeing something that already works and yep. just duplicating the same thing it, 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 the laziness is what bothers me if you're going to do something really original and creative to then sell a ticket to something or whatever right or to go or to sell Heinz ketchup that's fine in your business and if it's it, your original idea if it's your original yeah. idea but to not put that work into into being inspired mm-hmm. that's what's kind of gross about the whole thing is it's like lazy. it's second rate yeah it's lazy and you have to think that there was somebody who was a creative director for an ad agency who saw the video yep. and then you know that's what we're after. Took, took that, that exact took thing. that to a meeting and and maybe even didn't show the video and said, yeah. oh, "What about this idea?" Or did show the video? I don't know. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've done. I've worked with ad agencies who, you know, they'll they'll send me a deck that they had pitched to a client and won the business, and the deck is just a bunch of improv everywhere projects, mm-hmm. you know. And they're like, "Oh, we thought maybe we should ask you to work on it." Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess you should. Yeah. And, and I've worked with agencies too where they've pitched improv. They, they, they want a job on, we're going to do something like these improv everywhere things. And the brand is like, great. We think this is great. Let's do it. And then they have sent in like five ideas and the brand keeps saying, no, this idea is bad. No, this idea is bad. And then they come to me yeah. and they're like, oh, we thought maybe we should ask you for some ideas. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it's a bummer. Like I'll give one other example. There was a, um, oh, maybe I'll give two examples. There, there was a Portuguese napkin company a company that makes napkins in Portugal. Um, They saw our project Food Court Musical, which was a musical that breaks out in a food court in Los Angeles. And the song is called Can I Get a Napkin, Please? And it's just people suddenly standing up and saying they need a napkin in a food court. So this napkin company in Portugal saw that, translated the song into Portuguese, used our backing track, and everything was exactly the same, except it was in Portuguese. Um, And put it, and and it was like a TV commercial. Mm -hmm. No, No permission, didn't ask me. I just thought that was so brazen, like, especially with music, like clearly there's copyright involved with mm-hmm. the music and, and exact lyrics. Um, so, you know, I had to email them and say, you can't do this, you know, and they apologize. And I don't know, hopefully somebody got fired because it was just literal theft. Yeah. Um, I did a project called say something nice where we put a big podium in public spaces with a megaphone attached and a little placard that said, say something nice. And random New Yorkers came up to it and spoke into the megaphone and just said a nice thing. Um, and it went viral. It, it did really well. Um, Maybe a year later, an Australian morning show, like the Australian Today Show, did a segment where they put a podium together with a megaphone on top of it and put it in public spaces and had people say something nice. And that's fine, but like, if the segment had started with a clip of my video and said, we saw this great thing in New York, so we thought we'd try it, but it didn't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, it was literally just, we came up with this idea to do this, and, we, and here it is, we did it. Mm-hmm. And they're patting themselves on the back about how great and creative it was. And like, yeah, I get... That makes me upset. Yeah. Just, I mean, obviously, anyone. Direct theft of idea with no attribution is a bad thing. Yeah. What, what's your criteria for what makes for a good event? 
what what is what's the line that you won't cross i think that the projects always have to be as much fun for the people who are witnessing them or getting wrapped up in them or getting involved in them as it is for for me mm-hmm. you know any idea i try to come up with ideas that like that would be really awesome if i saw that if i was on the subway and somebody came on and announced that this subway car had won the cleanliness award <laughs> And that there would be a pizza party at 23rd Street. And then at 23rd Street, the doors open and 20 pizza guys showed up with pizzas. Like, that's a dream, right? So let's go do that. Yeah. Um, so th- that's, that's the, the motivation for a lot of ideas. It's like, this would be really cool to see. I would like to see this. Now, what I want to see and what every single New Yorker wants to see is not always the same. Mm-hmm. There may be somebody who's on that subway car who's in a bad mood or um, just does not want somebody to speak to them at all even if it's, sir, would you like a free slice of pizza? Um, and we definitely, no matter how positive we try to keep things, we will encounter you know, someone every now and then who's just negative like that. Yeah. But uh, you can't avoid that. But that's the goal, is to, is to create something that we think is awesome and fun and that we would like to see. Yeah, for, an example of that would be that those two guys who were getting really pissed off at um, No Pants Subway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you think was pissing them off so bad? I don't. I don't know. Yeah, that's they're in the documentary a bit. Um, the very first No Pants Subway ride, there was just a couple, two guys who did not like it and were very vocal. Um, I don't know. I think I think one of the two guys was just a real crab. Yeah. Um, and it, this was the one of the very first things we ever did. It was January two thousand two. So I think I think at this point, you know, if you see a performance on the subway, it's not as maybe shocking as it was fourteen years ago. Yeah. Um, I don't even know if Showtime was a thing in 2002. Maybe it, maybe it was. Um, you know, there have been people playing music and, and panhandling and selling things on the train for a long time. But I don't know. He, he, he literally said, this is not the opera house. Um, he, and, and, and the great thing about that, the great thing about that moment is that these guys are really upset about it. And then there was a woman sitting across from them who their being upset prompted her to speak up. And she, she responds like, that's exactly the point. It's not the opera house. It's public space. What they're doing is performance art, like, from, like happenings from the 60s. And that's why it's so great. Yeah. And uh, I love that moment so much. <laughs> There's, people are having like a very philosophical debate about the nature of art and, and where art should and should not be. Um, and there's six of us literally standing with our pants down, you know, around them while this debate is happening. Yeah, I, that's kind of the most thrilling image in a way, you know, breaking the set of, of an everyday routine. Yeah. Uh, uh, having a heated debate about something that is totally inappropriate to that situation, but why the hell not? And yeah. all the while having a dozen people with no pants on, <laughs> it, it, it's kind of perfect. Yeah, and I hope that that guy isn't like pissed off about it for the rest of his life. I hope at least it's a story that, you know, he can tell. Even, well, even if it's a negative story, like, yeah, right. these assholes came on the train right, right. with their pants off. It's still, you know, it's something. It's an interesting thing, and I imagine that the more famous you've become, the more you've had to battle it. Because when something's telegraphed as a performance that's about to happen, mm-hmm. it, 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 you, you will frequently either be pissed off because the, you know, like the privacy of my ride to work now mm-hmm. is, is being invaded by somebody who's looking for me to give them money for something that I didn't ask for. Right. Or, or you will be predetermined to enjoy the performance of it without being amazed by the performance of it. Right. There, there's the element right. of surprise where you kind of can't announce that something amazing is about to happen or else it doesn't 
catch you off guard. Unless that thing is so amazing that it can't help but catch you off guard. Like a pizza party. Yeah. So the pizza party, for example, um, Ryan Carls and I got on as two pretending to be two MTA officials and announced everybody, you know, ladies and gentlemen, congratulations. E-car number 10 departing World Trade Center at 2.05 p.m. has been awarded the cleanliest, you know, most polite car in the entire system. Therefore, you will get a pizza party and two stops at 23rd Street. You know, and people are kind of looking at us and laughing, but nobody thinks it's actually going to happen. Mm-hmm. And then when the doors open and the pizza guys are all lined up exactly on the doors and bust in, you know, it, it got a huge reaction. Yeah. So I think that's it is that, you know, you, you have to, it is important to be as discreet as possible and to be as undercover as possible. And that's something that is a challenge for us because we also want to make a really great video. So, you know, can we, can we clamp a GoPro up here onto this pole and maybe nobody will really see the GoPro and mm-hmm. it'll get us a lot better footage? Or should we not do that? Because if somebody does see it, then, you know, it ruins the surprise. So we, we balance that with our production. Something that I really like about what you do is, um, in a way, it kind of makes New York City feel like a smaller, more intimate place. Mm. There's something, because the after effect of the events is is to have a little bit more of a sense of, of community around it, mm-hmm. of having shared this experience. And in a way, it, to me, it, it makes New York feel more intimate somehow Mm -hmm. you know what I mean like which I think is really cool because it becomes a kind of playground it becomes a place where 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 a scene can happen at any time and and you never know when you're going to be an audience and you never know when you're going to be inadvertently a participant in in this thing it makes it feel more like our town, like a like a small town that we all belong to. We're all here at this in this incredible city. What's it been like for you going global and being such an such an international event? That's been fun. I mean, I've you know, we've toured a lot. I do a little less now because I have a child, but um, I got invited to a lot of theater festivals and art festivals and internet festivals and conferences all around the world. Particularly in the wake of our Frozen Grand Central video. Um, going as viral as it did. Um, and that was it was a blast to bring these types of projects to other cultures. And ultimately, the takeaway was people are the same everywhere. They react the same everywhere. They smile at the same moments. Um, you know, I, I think what I learned at, at the time that I spent traveling and producing things in, in other countries was how much we have in common. Yeah. I, you know, uh, 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 detouring off that for a second, another thing that occurred to me that, that I think is is really awesome about the way you work is that you'll organize so many people to be participants in an event without them knowing exactly what they're going to be mm-hmm. doing. And, and it seems like for so many of these, you don't necessarily know what the outcome is going to be. It's kind of setting up the circumstances of this thing happening and then seeing what happens. Yeah. And that is, I mean, I hate the name improv everywhere. Yeah. Um, I wish I had chosen a different name. What would you go with if you can go back in time? Uh, I don't know. There's not a better name either. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I really don't know. I've I've thought about it. I've thought about rebranding many times. Yeah. Um, it's kind of I, impossible. Right? Yeah, and it, yeah, but it's such. It's so. You know, it, it's the name is so ingrained. Um, but I, the reason I hate the name Improv Everywhere is because of the comment that we get. I have to see it on YouTube every day. Of this is an improv. 
and this isn't everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, this should be this should be called comedy in New York or uh-huh. whatever. I'm 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 a literal person. <laughs> yeah, I and know. You've offended I, my sensibilities. I know, I know. It's it's so stupid. It's like, well, Taco Bell is not a bell made out of a taco. Right. <laughs> like it's a restaurant. Right. Things are allowed to have names that are not literally what they are. Right. But <laughs> a, as an improviser, um, what you just described is is why the name why I chose that name and that in that insofar as we plan projects and we don't know the outcome, we don't know how people are going to react to us. Um, when this started, the performers were myself and my friends from my level one class and then my level two class and just people I was meeting at UCB. Um, so everybody involved was an improviser and the idea was let's take the rules of improv and our skills performing and keeping a straight face and, and performing off the cuff and do that in public spaces. Um, we have a general idea, but who knows how people are going to react? Who knows if the store is going to call 911 or if we're going to get, you know, in trouble or we don't know what's going to happen. And we definitely don't know how, you know, when that guy on the train is yelling at me for being in my underwear and I'm responding to him, that's an improvised moment. I mean, it's, there's, it's an unscripted moment. Um, but unscripted comedy in public places is not really a catchy name. No. Not that Improv Everywhere is either. But um, for a while, when Improv Everywhere reached sort of the height of its popularity in the, the sort of the Grand Central era, I felt guilty about the name because I, I know that Improv is a very confusing word, right? We all go home for Thanksgiving and we tell our uncle that we're doing Improv. And he says, great, tell me a joke. He, you know, he thinks that you're doing stand-up comedy. Maybe he thinks you're doing short-form Improv that he saw on Whose Line Is It Anyway?, um, but it's it's already an uphill battle to describe long form improv, and people have told me that yeah, my mom keeps like sending me newspaper clippings of people in their underwear and saying like, hey, it's what you do, mm-hmm. you know, and that this is someone who does not do <laughs> the no pants subway ride. Um, so I hate that there was a time where if you typed like IMP into Google, like improv everywhere was the first suggestion. Um, so I felt kind of that was cool, but I felt kind of guilty about. The name improv being further confusing and further diluted, I think, in part because of how successful we were for a time, at least. Um, but yeah, so I'd like to change it. But what you're saying is very true. That, that it excites me going into a public space with a plan and an outline and not knowing the outcome. And I, it, it's got to be really exciting to be a participant in that too. To show up dressed in a blue shirt and khakis and not know that you're about to go flood Best Buy yeah. is amazing. It's got to be such a thrill to, 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 to have it be revealed to you what your purpose is for the day. And, it's, and, and people put a lot of trust in me that I'm going to show up at this point, at this spot, I'm going to bring these props or dress this way, and I trust that it's going to be fun. Yeah. And I trust that I'm not going to get into too much trouble. You know, I mean, it's, it's a lot of pressure on me to, to keep that trust. That every time I go down that route and ask people to come somewhere without knowing what they're doing, that I've really thought it through. Yeah. What's your take on dealing with authority and cops and whatnot? You've had a few run-ins. Mm-hmm. Is that part of the thrill of staging things, or is it something that you just hope to avoid? I mean, you had it, a couple of big ones. You had They mm-hmm. stopped a whole subway line for you. Yep. Yep. One of the no-pants subway rides, that they took a train out of commission because yeah. a cop couldn't handle it. Um, it's not something I seek. I don't like it. Yeah. It's the worst. It, it's, it, you know, it, I, I know in the back of my head, like this does make for a good story. Um, and this isn't bad for YouTube views. Um, when something like that happens, but it's bad for the people to whom it's happening. Right it now. could be, it could be, um, it's, I mean, you know, even if it's not ultimately bad, it could just, they're nervous or uncomfortable and that's bad. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, my, my heart sinks whenever it happens. Um, I have a pit in my stomach, like, Oh no. 
Um, you know, cause you don't know how things are going to go. I'll, I'll give an example of the most recent time where the police got involved. Um, we did a project at the gap a couple of years ago where I noticed that the gaps mannequins kind of resembled morph suits. Mm-hmm. Um, they had like, you could see parts of their facial features, but you know, most mannequins look like a, a guy in a white morph suit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, somebody from morph suits had contacted me in the past about, you know, wanting to offer me free morph suits. So I hit him, hit him up and I said, I got this idea. Could you get me like a hundred morph suits? And he did hundred white morph suits. So then I asked people to show up at central park, who are between like five ten and six one? I think like men, men who are six feet and women who are five ten, because I measured that was the height of the mannequins in the gap. Um, they did not know what they were doing. It was just show up in Central Park um, wearing Gap or similar clothing, and you should be okay with um, getting into a morph suit. Maybe I said that, um, and then I tell them, "Here's the idea: we're all going to go into the Gap, and we're going to freeze in place at the exact same second next to their mannequins, and we're going to zip up our morph suit faces at that moment." And we're going to give the gap a hundred extra mannequins. Um, and people laughed and, oh, this is hilarious. And so far, so good. And then we go down there. We do it. It is hilarious. It's very creepy. Um, the funniest part was that a lot of people didn't notice. Like, we just have all this great footage of people walking by, like, four mannequins. And, and two mannequins are real and two are fake. But just, like, shopping and browsing and not noticing. Um, I really like the way it looked. And I'm proud of the project. But the security guard called the police. Mm. And the security guard said there is a flash mob in progress at the Gap on Fifth Avenue. And that word, I hate that word. Mm-hmm. I really hate the word flash mob. For I could talk for an hour about why I hate it. Um, but mostly because I don't think it doesn't mean anything. And it, it got invented like four years into improv everywhere to describe somebody else's project. But it's sort of always used to describe a, a lot of our things. Um, but also flash mob sometimes means robbery because there was this other trend, which was just like the media taking a buzzword and, and turning it into like the like scary thing you have to, you know, tune in at 11 to find out about um, because teenagers were robbing stores in Chicago and Philadelphia in mass, like 20 people going into a footlocker at the same time, grabbing a bunch of clothing and all running out in the theory that like probably none of us will get caught. Maybe one of us will, but mm-hmm. they can't catch all of us. Um, and the media decided to call that a flash mob. So I think that was on the brain of the dispatcher of 911 when they heard that. And it basically got translated to there's a robbery happening at the Gap. Mm-hmm. So the cops showed up in force very quickly, very aggressively, essentially were tackling mannequins. And at the same time, the store had said, like, you guys have to leave. You know, we're kicking you guys out. And I told everybody, if the store says to leave, leave, which is always the rule. Um, so now you have a bunch of mannequins coming down an escalator in morph suits um, with the cops at the bottom of the escalator just sort of taking people and handcuffing them and putting them face down mm-hmm. on the floor of the gap. So I'm looking, and there's this guy, Gary, who has done a number of my pranks, and I think he's in his 70s, um, really nice old man, and he's tall, and he signed up for this one, and I, I see him face down mm-hmm. on the ground in handcuffs. Um, you know, I race down the escalator and go up to the cops and like, hi. I organized this. All of these people are only here because of me. And the cop was just like dumbfounded. He's like, you organized this? I was like, I guess thinking I was admitting to organizing a robbery because they still didn't quite know what was going on. I was like, yeah. yes, it's a comedy group. This is just a performance. We're about to leave anyway. We're happy to leave. You know, this is a harmless prank. And they handcuffed me, put me face down on the ground. I think all in all, probably about 20 people were handcuffed and planked on the floor. Um, 
and then eventually they started unhandcuffing people. And as they were unzipping the morph suit mask, because people still had their morph suit mask on as they were in handcuffs, um, the cops started realizing, like, wait a minute, that's a 75-year-old dude, and that's a 10-year-old girl. <laughs> like, I think they realized, like, this is not a crime syndicate. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something else. Uh, one of the cops came up to me and was like, this is improv everywhere? I was like, yes, it is. Like, my wife does your MP3 experiment project every summer. She's taken me a couple times. Uh, I, I get what you do. Wow. I was like, oh, great. It's a, a friend. This is amazing. And he was like, you got to understand that from the Gap's point of view, you know, you, you're staging a performance without the permission in their store. I was like, I completely understand that. And, you know, well, we did not intend for you to be called. We thought we'd be asked to leave. Um, and ultimately, nobody got in trouble. Mm. But it was terrifying. It was a terrible experience. Like, I, I felt awful for days. Um, because there was a 10 year old girl or maybe she was 14. I don't know. There, you know, there was a, a young girl and a, and an elderly man who were handcuffed and placed face down on the floor of a retail store right. because they showed up to participate in a fun improv everywhere prank. Right. And the, everybody had a good attitude about it and everybody was really nice about it. Um, we had a, a, a premiere screening of the video and invited everybody to come over to our, the production company's office. And, you know, it, it ended on a good note, but, um, you know, it, your question was how do you how to deal with authority, and I think it's just be honest and apologize. Yeah. Um, in that incident on the No Pants subway ride, the what kind of went wrong is a cop stepped onto the train and said, "I wasn't on the particular car," and saw ten, twelve people in their underwear and said, "What are you guys doing?" And they stayed in character and said, "Oh, it was just I forgot my pants. I don't know these other people," and that pissed them off. Yeah. And things escalated. Yeah. Um, and I really applaud those people for staying in character because that is kind of what you're supposed to do. But now I make sure to tell people, like, if somebody with a badge and a gun comes up to you and says what you're doing, tell the truth. Well, it, it, there's a combination, right, of of something not making sense to people and anything that doesn't make sense is registered as a possible threat. Yep. And, and, and coupled with you get the wrong guy on the wrong day and he's going to think that you're giving him lip and he's going to think that you're making fun of him or disrespecting him. And and then you're going to feel the full, the full brunt of, of his bullshit. Yep. I think it's very important just to, you know, my demeanor is just very frank, very honest, very apologetic. And and also it's important for me as the organizer to be the one that, you know, races down, Mm -hmm. takes, takes control. Um, you know, had I been like up on the third floor and not realized this in time, you know, then I would have really been upset. Um, but it's just going and saying, I did this. Here's, I don't think it was illegal to wear a costume in the gap, but uh, I understand that they're upset and want us to leave. And mm-hmm. I would like to apologize to them. And I apologize that your time's been wasted. And, you know, I think you, if you're just a nice, normal, honest person uh, who's apologetic, it goes a long way. Well, I'm also impressed with y- your. You don't have a fuck you attitude towards the people who are getting upset by some of the stuff that you're doing. You, right. you express a lot of a lot of empathy for their side. And I've heard you say a few times that like he's just a cop doing his job. Yeah, and that security guard who called nine one one, like, I wish I wish he had walked up to a mannequin and said, Hey, you guys have to leave. Right. Because he's a, he immediately dialed nine one one. Yeah. Um so I wish he hadn't have done that, but I don't know. I mean, I, that one in particular, I got of a hundred people to wear a mask in a retail store on fifth Avenue. Like that's crazy. Yeah. It was crazy that I did that. Yeah. Um, when, when you think about it that way, 
when you when you think about it, like, wouldn't it be hilarious to dress up like mannequins and freeze in place? Yeah, it is hilarious. But if you look at it from their perspective of like, there's a hundred people in here with masks on. Right. I just <laughs> I just saw the purge two nights ago. <laughs> yeah. I don't. Yeah. This is the Gap's flagship store that yeah. does. You know, I mean, the, the store was closed for half hour, an hour. I mean, they they I'm sure they lost some revenue. Um, so you know. My favorite detail along those lines is when when you had the cops called on you in Best Buy, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the managers was on the headphone saying Thomas Crown Affair, <laughs> as if they were expecting, like they were prepared for a Thomas Crown Affair event too. <laughs> yeah, it, it seemed like it was like manager code. <laughs> I don't know. I want to uh, go back in time for a few minutes, if you don't mind, mm-hmm. to um, your involvement with the UCB Theater. Yep. You've been there since 2001. It... it were you already familiar with the UCB themselves before you started off? I watched the television show okay. in college, but I, I didn't watch a lot of TV in college. Yeah. You know, DVRs didn't exist and college kids are busy. Um, but I would occasionally catch it. It was on after South Park. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I probably watched a third of that of, of the first season and, and a little bit of the next couple of seasons too. Uh, and I liked it, thought it was hilarious. Uh, really liked that at the end of those episodes, they would go out in public and take some of their sketch characters and interact with real people. Right. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, that definitely was an inspiration to me. There when, seems to be a strong connection started. between your sensibility and, and what they were doing in Chicago before they hit New York. Yeah. Yeah. Which I found out about, you know, years later, but yeah, absolutely. The, the pranks that Horatio and the UCB were doing to promote their shows, um, were very much like street theater and performance art. Yeah. Um, so I was aware of the UCB. I didn't know they had a theater. I went the summer after my junior year of college. I went to the British American Drama Academy, which is like Shakespeare summer camp in Oxford, England, for theater majors. And I met a guy named T.J. Miller, who is now Hollywood's T.J. Miller, mm-hmm. uh, Silicon Valley's T.J. Miller. And he uh, he and I became fast friends that summer because we were both really into comedy. And he told me. Uh, when I was moving to New York a year later, he was like, you've got to check out the Upright Citizens and Brigade Theater. Uh, so I went to see a Herald Knight, basically, on, on his recommendation um, shortly after moving there. Actually, the very first show I saw at UCB, TJ was uh, in the Del Close Marathon. His college group, Recess, from George Washington University, um, had a slot at the Del Close Marathon at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And I went uh, to see TJ. And that was like the only show I saw at DCM, maybe a little bit of the show before and a little bit of the show after but he was in town and I was there to see him and hang out with him. But as soon as I walked into that theater on, on 22nd street, I was like, Oh my God, this is the coolest place I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I went to Harold Knight about a month later and was blown away. I saw respect to Montalban. Um, and just um, like literally I kept like a little journal at the time. Um, and on like the L train ride home wrote in that journal, like, I am no no longer focused on acting and auditioning for theater. I'm going to put all my energy into like being on stage at this place. It's so fun to to. I don't know if if the kids are still doing it these days, while mm-hmm. with phones and whatnot. But yeah. talking to anybody who who got involved in the scene in like anywhere between like 2000 and 2004, it's so fun to hear about everybody's journals because everybody yeah. had journals. Everybody was taking notes about every Harold they ever saw. Yep. I went to, I, so I took level one with Armando. I signed up for level one. Um, and that was in the days where you had to wait in line in front of the old. Um, on, on 23rd Street? Yeah, I guess it was I guess it was 23rd Street where the training center was. Uh-huh, yeah. yeah, well, it wasn't even a training center. Um, but yeah, that's where I waited in line. Um, 
No, no, no. I waited in line on 22nd Street okay. because they had the offices for the theater were above the theater mm-hmm. um, right there. It was before the 23rd Street um, spot. Um, anyway, you had to wait in line and, and on paper, like write a check and hand them a piece of paper and you'd get registered. And I took Armando for level one and I loved it. I had a notebook. I took notes for everything Armando said and then everything Michael Delaney said for level two. And I had Michael Delaney for level three as well. Um, I took Armando's instant brilliance class. You know, Armando like took some of the students aside in level one in like the last couple of weeks. And we're like, hey, you're really good. I think you might want to take my instant brilliance class, mm-hmm. um, which was a smart strategy because I was like, oh, Armando thinks I'm good. Yeah, I will take more Armando classes. Yes, uh, but his instant brilliance class was great, and I met met great people through that too. Um, and uh, yeah, just dove in. And you've been there. I mean, consistently, you play all the time for for what 15 years now. Yeah, I got into a Herald team about a year after taking classes. Um, I started in like October 2001 and like November 2002 got yeah. into Herald team. Um, I got in, I was invited to like an invite only audition of 32 people and did not make the team, but was kind of an alternate and I got placed on another team about two months later. Um, and yeah, I, I, it's ridiculous. The things that I, I like do, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm almost embarrassed by... Um, how much I keep doing the same thing. I mean, I just did the 15th annual no pan subway ride. It might've been the 16th annual. Um, no, 15th. Um, and I've been hosting cage match at UCB theater at 11 o'clock on Thursday nights since 2003, mm-hmm. 13 that's, that's years. Probably where I first saw you actually I probably saw you and Chris Kula hosting it together. Okay. Yeah. In probably like summer 2003. Mm-hmm. We would have been, we, we started hosting it. Yeah. Right around then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I've been doing a Saturday night show at the theater for, I think over 10 years too. Um, but I love it, you know, so as long as I love doing it, I'm going to keep doing it. I, uh, two questions off of that. I I was looking up directions on Google to go somewhere the other day Mm -hmm. and noticed that on the, on the map, uh, they just list UCB on the map. There's, it's like a broad map of New York city and there's like a dot with UCB next to it. And it's just like, Oh like, wow. That's like pretty zoomed out. Like uh, zoomed out. It, yeah. Like I was, and I was not going to UCB. Yeah. It, it was just yeah. zoomed out. There it is. as like a landmark. Yeah. You were coming up 2001, that era, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in a, kind of a little bit of like a transitional period where things were not nearly as big as they are now. Definitely. Were you aware as you were doing it, that this is this is such like a grandiose way of putting it, but you know, like you're a part of of comedy history. Right? Were you aware as it's literally happening? there was an oral history for yeah? Oh yeah, <laughs> Brian Raftery. Wrote. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, it, like was is that something that's like uh, when a moment like that is occurring? It, it do you see it happening while it's happening, or is it after the fact? You look back and you say, "Holy shit, that was a turning point." It was well. I mean, I was not at the theater in like. 98, 99, 2000. I wasn't there for the solo arts days. Like, it's funny. I feel like no matter when you join UCB, and it's probably true for other theaters too, you can look back and go like, oh, if I had been around like three years ago, I'd be on this team, you know? Or back in the old days, it was so easy to get onto a team. And honestly, that's the way my peers thought. Like, yeah, back in the day, you would take level three with Armando, and then your class would be made a Herald team. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of was what happened, I think in the very early days. And now like 200 people are auditioning for 16 slots, you know? And then I think most recently it's probably a thousand people that auditioned. Um, so I feel like the grass was always a little greener if you look back a couple of years. Um, so I, but I also, I bring it up because I wasn't part of like the people that like literally built that space Mm -hmm. on, on 22nd street. Um, but I was sort of the first 
wave of students that benefited from from what they had done. And you were there at the transition from the 22nd Street space to the 26th Street space, which yeah. was like, a, that, that was a big step. Yeah, and it was also an awful time. I mean, when the, when the 22nd Street Theater got shut down and UCB was nomads for about six months, it was really depressing. Yeah. Um, you know, we were performing at like the Access Theater on Canal Street. That's where my Herald Knight debut was at this theater that was like a six floor walk up on Canal. Mm. Um, it just didn't feel the same. Um, but uh, yeah, I was. I knew that it was. I knew that it was big. I don't know. I was blown away by that style of comedy, and it was so different from everything else that was in the city at that time. Mm-hmm. It was so different from Chicago City Limits um, and Gotham City Improv and any improv I'd seen in my life, um, you know, college or, 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 you know, other places where I, down south where I was from. So it was mind-blowing. And, and just watching Late Night with Conan O'Brien every night and seeing, like, oh, every person who's in the bits on Conan is from Harold Knight. And it really kind of felt like you get onto, you know, you take classes, you get onto a Herald team, then you get to do Conan bits, then maybe you get to be on the Daily Show. Mm-hmm. Like, and that was not true for everybody, of course. Um, but, you know, you, I just started realizing like every TV commercial I watch has the people I'm watching on stage. Every comedy bit, you know, seems to have these people. So it wasn't surprising when people started blowing up. That was super cool back when Conan was still in New York. I know. And that really had like a small town feel to it in a way. Yeah. Because you would. You'd go home at night, you'd watch Conan, and I I know all of those people. Yep. Or or at least I know of them. I just saw everybody on Tuesday night. Yep. And there really was just kind of this cool, I don't know, small town seems like I'm making fun of it, but it, it felt somehow more local and more like accessible. Oh, there's stars all around me, but they're just kind of walking around and sharing the same... Yeah, room. and there's a lot. There's more late night shows in New York now than there was then. But I feel like there's, there's it, less use of actors. Yes, or, or writers end up being the actors, and yes. all the writers all came from UCB or the comedy community too. So. Yes, but yeah, yeah I, I think that that's true. There's there's more writing. Yeah, and also like I don't know, it feels different with like when Conan was in New York. There was a moment in like the mid '90s to the late '90s where it was a real big like Conan was the the hip guy. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, waxing sure. nostalgia. Um, I had another question I wanted to ask, and I don't remember what it was. Oh, yeah. The kind of cyclical nature of being an improviser. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, how do I get to the question? What question am I trying to ask about this exactly? Doing the same thing every week for 12 years. Yeah. Um, uh, some people hit a, not a burnout point, but a point where they begin to feel like the tires are being worn out or, or, or there's a, there's just something of looking and feeling like, Oh, living my life as a gigantic cycle is, mm-hmm. is depressing me. Mm-hmm. Some people I've spoken with that doesn't bother them at all. And, and it, it, they've managed to ride the momentum of that and accomplish certain things with their lives. But that is coming home to the thing that they most love. It, it's touching back on their power source again. Yeah, I think it depends on what else you're doing with your life and yeah. if you're being fulfilled in other ways because I think performing improv on a stage in New York City is a non-paying job um, and you have to do it because you love doing it. And I think if maybe if I had been doing it for 12 years hoping to catch some big break or, or hoping that there's a casting director in the audience or something like that, then maybe it could get depressing. But I do it because I, I love doing it. Um, and you know, I want to keep doing it. So it's, I'm also very routine oriented. Um, I have a lot of annual things in my life. I have a lot of weekly things in my life. I like 
that kind of schedule. I like that every Thursday night I host a cage match with my friend Sean Hart and we have a drink beforehand and hang out and catch up and there'll be you know, people from different teams that I know or new people that I meet. And cage match for me is very much just my way to keep my pulse on what's going on in the UCB community because the up and coming indie teams will do the show and the Lloyd teams will do the show. And it's just my way to kind of stay in touch with everybody. Um, and it's been so valuable for me as I, you know, work on other things. I, I produced a show, um, was a showrunner of a show for MTV this past year called Middle of the Night Show. Uh, College Humor guys created it. And uh, Brian Murphy was the star of it from College Humor. Um, but, you know, just having my pulse on the UCB community and knowing like, oh, I need we need this kind of person for the show. This person would be good. I mm-hmm. saw them do cage match last week. Like it, I really like just that show keeps me connected to the community, whereas being 37 years old and having a two year old, you know, I'm certainly not as connected as when I was a 23 year old at McManus four nights a week. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like it for that. And then the Saturday night show, I do the curfew every Saturday at 730. Um, and that's just fun. Um, it's it's not an improv audience. I miss that. Um, I don't know if the same is true for weekend shows at the Magnet versus, you know, shows during the week. That yeah, it depends more... on the slot, but for sure. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, at UCB, definitely my 730 Saturday show is we ask every time, who's here for the first time? Who's at the theater for the first time? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's... It's anywhere from 80% to sometimes it'll be under 50. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and when it's under 50, often I'll be like, oh, it's going to be a good show. <laughs> you know, these are people who have, who have seen improv before. Yeah. Um, but I also I think that it's great, it's great exercise to have to go out in front of a crowd of people who have, if they haven't been to the UCB, they, they likely haven't seen improv before. Maybe, maybe, you know, maybe they've seen improv at other theaters in New York or they're from somewhere else and they've seen long form. But still... They're not this sort of like cushy student audience who already knows you and knows your style and knows this style of improv. So you have to work a little harder, I think. And I think it's great training. Uh, any surprises with fatherhood? Um, it's been great. Uh, my son is out of town right now. We, we went down to the south. Um, I'm from Columbia, South Carolina. We went down, I went down there for a bachelor party. A cousin's getting married. And then we left him for five nights and came back here. So my wife and I are taking a vacation in New York. Uh, you know, it's sort of like the greatest vacation of all. Where we have our old life back. Hmm. Where last night we went to dinner and a Broadway show, and we went to a bar afterwards, and we didn't pay anybody an hourly rate to do all those things. Um, so that's been great. But I guess the surprise is that I really miss him. Yeah. Like you know, I I, I really. I mean, that's not a surprise, but how much I miss him. Yeah. Um, but he's he's starting to get really fun. Um, and I look forward to him being a little bit older. I actually have a couple of improv everywhere ideas that need a child as a prop. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be casting him. He's I the think. next Milo Delaney. <laughs> yeah. But I've used Milo in an improv everywhere video, yeah. actually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so now you and your wife are hosting a podcast, Two Beers In. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I want to talk about that. So yeah. that's, yeah, that's, I put a lot of energy into that this year. We pitched a show. Um, it's a stage show at UCB East where, uh, the two of us, my wife Cody Lanquist and I, and a panel uh, chug two beers, literally, on stage uh, while somebody does a character bit. Um, and then we talk about politics for an hour. And then we started podcasting it because we realized that we were already just talking into microphones on stage and it was so easy just to hit record in the booth. 
and now we're doing uh, podcast episodes outside of the the monthly show too. But it's 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 we're really excited because we're huge political junkies. We're huge MSNBC nerds specifically. And our most recent show, we had Steve Kornacki, who is like MSNBC's numbers guy. Mm-hmm. Like whenever they check in at the board and he does the telestrator, it's Steve. Um, and we used to watch a show he had on Saturday mornings. And anyway, like the that class, like the pundit class and the and the political journalist class is starting to become aware of what we're doing and they're all interested in like, it's cool for them to go do a UCB show Mm -hmm. and it's cool for us to have an actual like, you know, cable news journalist on our show. So it's working out good. I hope, I hope we can keep some momentum with that. What's the turnaround between recording it and getting it up on iTunes as soon as possible, because it's a very topical show. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll record the show, whether it's at night at the theater or uh, in our apartment on an off week and, as soon as possible, we'll we'll upload it. Kick ass. Uh, yeah. uh, two beers in. Check it out on iTunes. Two beers in. Search on iTunes. Awesome. Charlie Todd, it's been a pleasure talking to you, man. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks, yeah. Lewis. Thanks very much for being here. Yeah. And thank you all for listening. This has been the Magnet Theater Podcast. Thank you. Goes out to a few others as well, including, but not limited to, our producer, Evan Ford Barden, our engineer, Grant Michael Goldberg, our executive producer, Ed Herbstman, and all of you kind, fine, wonderful people for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please give us a positive rating on iTunes. That would be super super great please check out two beers in uh check out charlie todd at the ucb theater on uh thursday nights a cage match when else saturday nights at 7 30 the curfew the curfew saturday nights at 7 30 uh charlie todd has been the guest thank you so much again you bet thank you bye friends bye you've been listening to the magnet podcast This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.